Welcome everyone. This is the inaugural episode of Resilience AF, a podcast for airmen to share their experiences in resiliency, whether good or bad. It was once said that a smart man learns from his experiences, but a wise man learns from the experiences of others. We are here to share, to listen, to learn, and most of all, to grow. I'm your host, Austin. I'm a service member, a husband, and a father. I choose to go by only my first name so that our focus here can be the stories of our guests. They are airmen with powerful stories to tell. This project has been on my heart to create for some time now because we have a habit of keeping our struggles and failures close to chest, not sharing them with others. It is my sincere belief that by sharing our experiences, we can all grow in one way or another. This project seeks to share both the successes and failures of our members with the hopes of distributing valuable lessons learned in resiliency, leadership, followership, and life. A few disclaimers. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast may be from service members, but are not representative of any organization or larger body. Also, this is my first podcast, and I'm a hobbyist at best. I hope to produce new episodes bi-weekly, but please understand life happens. I am not a professional audio engineer, so you may have to forgive the quality of these productions, at least initially. This is going to be a journey for all of us, myself included. So let's get started. So today on the show, I have joining me Technical Sergeant Jules Ponton. And so first and foremost, I want to thank you, Jules, for being a part of our inaugural episode for kind of uh, um, to to a small extent being my guinea pig while we kind of work out the kinks of this process and of this podcast. So, hey, thanks for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for uh, for having me here. And and uh, it's a pleasure uh, sharing my story. And, and it's awesome to be first. So uh, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. So just for our audience, um, would you mind introducing yourself? Just kind of, you know, brief synopsis of uh, your career, where you've been, what you've done. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my name's, you know, Jules Ponton, technical sergeant. I have uh, been in the Air Force almost 11 years now, as of 21 April. And um, I am a manpower analyst with the uh, 11th Support Squadron out at uh, Joint Base Andrews, Maryland. And so uh, I was security forces for about five and a half years, and then I retrained into manpower. So for a good five and a half years, now, I've been doing that. And um, it's been an awesome experience. I love my job. I love what I do every day. Every day is different. And uh, I have awesome coworkers. So every day is a, is a new experience for sure. Awesome. Very nice. So, so Jules, um, I guess let me just start out by asking, what is your story? Yeah, so, uh, so you know, uh, wife and I got um, pregnant in 2017. She was, at the time, she was also military. She was security forces, and that's how we met. And um, so when we got pregnant, you know, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't all that we would hope. So at about the first ultrasound, so we're talking about 12 weeks into the pregnancy, um, you know, they were already a little bit concerned. The doctors were like, Hey, so there's no movement in your daughter's arms. And, um, you know, obviously 
in such a joyous occasion, you want to be happy. You want to, you know, you want to be elated with the whole situation. But uh, we were concerned because obviously there was no movement in her arms. And shortly after, at 20 weeks, when they did the anatomy scan, then they said, hey, yeah, there's a huge, a huge red flag there. Um, you know, there's some malformation in the intestines, the arms lack any movement. And so uh, there was a, uh, a very kind of dark moment in the, in the hospital room because immediately thereafter they sent us to what they call maternal fetal medicine. And uh, the doctors there came in and they, they actually started talking about, hey, you know, it, it's the fetus doesn't have a positive outcome. So here are your options. Amongst those was um, abortion. So that was a very weird moment for us, a very dark moment in our lives. And um, from there, they did what, what's called an amniocentesis, where they pretty much take like DNA fluid. Um, and that was at about 22 weeks, so about two weeks later. And they test, they check her DNA for any abnormalities. And she had none. So at that point, they wanted to see, you know, hey, is it something that maybe genetically y'all have passed down to her and um, there was nothing there. So it was a surprise to everyone because we had no answers to, to why our daughter was, you know, suffering from the issues that she was suffering from. So it sounds like in that, while at the time it probably didn't really seem this way, but it sounds like there was a little bit of good news in the fact that this wasn't something genetic because, you know, based on my understanding is that means that the likelihood of this happening if you and your wife chose to have another child would be fairly low, given no genetic diagnosis for either of you. Yes, they were actually great news for us. And the geneticists told us that there was a 0.01% chance of either of the two conditions reoccurring. So those are really, really great news. I want to take a step back. And from our conversations prior to the interview, it was your wife's first ultrasound to which they were kind of like, something's wrong. We're not sure how bad it is, but we need to do another ultrasound and soon. Yeah. So... Um, you know, it was funny enough after our conversation, my wife was like, Hey, let me, let's, let's look at the timeline. Cause it, you know, she, she was essentially living it every day. Um, and I had my, I guess my way of getting out of that dark moment. I, I was going to work every day. I was trying to find a different, um, different mindset, um, that would help me go through this. And so we actually ended up looking at the timeline and it was, yeah, the first ultrasound was at 12 weeks of pregnancy. And then um, at that moment, they said, yeah, her arms don't show any movement, which is a concern. And then the anatomy scan came at 20 weeks. So about two months later came the anatomy scan. And that's where they figured out that her intestines were malformed and the arms were still not moving. And after that, it was essentially every week to two weeks, we were in the hospital getting more, you know, more scans and more ultrasounds to follow up with the baby because at that point it wasn't, it wasn't looking very well for us. 
So Jules, can you describe what that two months was like for you and your wife? It was uh, a lot of questioning, you know, um, a lot of things. Uh, I know my wife went back to, she really, really held on to her faith. She started going back to church a lot more, um, finding strength in prayer. Um, I started trying to work out, trying to stay really active at work. Um, essentially, I almost felt like I was looking for a distraction, to be honest. Um, so I didn't have to think about it. But every day it was like, you know, what's going to happen? Um, we don't know what's going to happen. And uh, just being in this unknown place for the longest time, it drove, you know, a lot of um, lack of conversation, a lot of uh, arguments between the wife and I, because we almost focused on different things. She wanted to focus on her faith. I, I wasn't really into that at the moment. I was more of like, let me just not think about the situation and uh, and distract myself at work. And and I'm good at work. I'm good at what I do. So let me just be good at that because I can't control the situation right now. And uh, and that lack of control is almost infuriating, frustrating. Um, and it almost breaks down your confidence in yourself because you almost sit there and say, you know, what can I do? Nothing. Um, you feel like a failure, but at the same time, you don't want to. You have to be strong because, you know, you, you're married and, and, you, and you're having a baby on the way and and you still have a job and your coworkers count on you to do your job. So it was a very tumultuous kind of moment for us. So when you talk about, you know, that two month time span, when you all finally knew, was there some relief? at all in that? I mean, obviously the diagnosis wasn't good, but was there kind of relief in having an answer? And did that bring you any sort of solace at all? There was relief. Absolutely. Um, once they knew that her intestines were the issue and that they had some sort of, um, you know, way ahead even if it was just, hey, let's look, let's wait until your wife gets birth, and then we'll kind of go from there. But we know for sure it's the intestines, and and these are the problems that we're looking at. There was relief because it was like, okay, well, at least the um the team, the medical team that's taking care of her, is uh is aware of what she has now. And all of a sudden, a conversation about you know abortion or anything along those lines is entirely out of the question. Um, and it, we weren't having to kind of even consider that, which we hadn't in the first place. Um, but it was just one more negative thing to kind of not have to to deal with. And um, you know, it was a there was still a little bit of concern because the first thing they told us was, "Hey, it's this." However, we won't be able to do anything with the intestines until she gets she gives birth, and then we can actually see the baby. So there there were a lot of concerns moving forward. But at the moment when they told us what it was, um, yeah, it was a huge kind of, I remember just a huge sigh of relief, at least saying, hey, you know what, we got some sort of answer. Let's just, let's just rejoice on that. So you all kind of finally have an answer and you know that there's, you, you're kind of being, it sounds like you're kind of being told that the only thing that you can do at this point, even after having your answer is to wait even more until your wife gives birth. 
So, and you kind of described that there were a very frequent um, appointments and whatnot up until birth. So kind of fast forwarding, what was your daughter's birth like? So just to, just, I'd like to just mention this um, throughout this entire time. I remember my leadership being extremely supportive of the both of us. And, um, you know, it was a lot of, Hey, if you have to be at the hospital for another appointment, go for it. Don't really worry about having to be here. Um, we're here for you. Just tell us how you need us to be there for you. Um, and that conversation I, I felt really helped a lot because all those times that I felt like I was like, Oh man, I'm letting my coworkers and my, you know, my work down. It, I was actually kind of reinforced that idea of you know, take care of your family first. So that really, really helped throughout the entire pregnancy. And so when, when, you know, the baby was actually born, um, all that stress was actually alleviated by the fact that I knew that my leadership kind of had our back and, um, they just wanted me to be there for my family. And so baby was born November 10th of 2017, little baby Jules. And, um, about two to three days later, she had her first surgery, which was the gastroenterologist at uh, San Antonio Military Medical Center, SAMC. And uh, she had to do surgery to see what was actually happening with the intestines. And um, I remember her, she, you know, she told us, hey, so I'm going to go in there and I can actually see option A, B, or C. A is best case scenario you know, her intestines aren't really that damaged and they can be salvaged. B is, okay, they're somewhat damaged and we can do some repairs. And C was like, yeah, this is a worst case scenario and her intestines cannot be salvaged. And um, we were hoping, obviously, for A. <laughs> but when she came back out of the surgery, she notified us that, you know, it was C. Your daughter had surgery within about 24 to 48 hours of being born and she actually only had 19 remaining so somewhere in that in her formation as a, as a fetus she never really developed any more than 19 centimeters and the rest was essentially dead um so yeah so that's what we day three that's what we found out after birth so kind of what ensued after that i mean you you talked about your leadership support during the pregnancy and whatnot. What did the next, I guess, two to four months look like for you, your wife, and your newborn daughter? Yeah. So, um, so essentially, she was born. She was intubated. You know, there's um, she couldn't eat anything. Um, they had a, they did the surgery um, all at the same time, they were actually trying to understand what her, um, arm condition was because they had never seen that condition either. And, um, you know, the whole time, essentially my leadership said, Hey, here's a laptop, go work in the hospital, which right off the bat was a huge kind of, you know, weight taken off my shoulder because now I was, I felt like I could be productive, you know, for the air force, um, from, the bedside of my daughter and my wife, which was fantastic. Um, the, the doctors, we believe, were they were fantastic. They they were very upfront with us, and they said, "Hey, look, we just we've never seen your daughter's either one of her conditions at SAMC. 
Um, so what we'd like to do is we'd like to reach out to, you know, professionals in the country and, um, we're going to hopefully they can help us treat her. And they did primarily for her, her, uh, short gut syndrome, which for her intestines, because that's the, the life dependent one. And, um, they reached out to Dr. Torres at children's national medical center in DC. And, um, Dr. Torres was essentially treating our daughter uh, via teleconference every day before our daughter was ever transferred to D.C. or was ever, you know, under her actual care. So to us, that was a huge kind of blessing because we were like, oh, man, here's this doctor who just took on, you know, our daughter's care. Um, and that, that to us was just amazing. So they essentially took about two and a half weeks to process the EFMP paperwork and uh, all the medical transfer paperwork. And then they um, transferred our daughter via uh, one of those, essentially a private jet. It was just my wife and my daughter um, in an incubator and uh, the air crew. And they flew her from SAMC NICU to the Children's National Medical Center in DC. And, um, I remember when all this all this was going on, we were trying to fill out the paperwork. It was just a very blurry kind of time because I was all over the place. I was going to the office. I was trying to, you know, trying to print out paperwork to fill out and all that. But amongst all this craziness and all this haste, um, my CFM, my career field manager at the time, Chief Slater, she pulled me into the office one day and she said, hey, so let's talk about your career because, you know, from what I understand, she was very intimate with the situation. Your daughter could go to one of these hospitals and she can be there for life, right? Because these are lifelong conditions. And so um, we had to pick out the top five hospitals that we wanted to go to for our daughter's care. And it was really easy for us. It was just, hey, what are the best hospitals in the country that that TRICARE will, will pay for? There's no question. And... Um, we picked five and my CFM said, okay, well, here you go. Let's talk about these five places that I can send you to. And um, it was a very long-term outlook in my career. And I remember her saying, you know, hey, yeah, we can send you to, to Seattle, but you know, there's a tech sergeant slot there and that's it. When you make tech, because I was a staff at the time, when you make tech, you're going to cap out and you'll have nowhere to go. So she actually took the time to look at the locations that we had selected to go to and uh, broke it down into the effects that that would have in my career long-term. That's awesome that you had that level. I think really just that level of foresight, because when we're in situations like this, we kind of tend to focus or get tunnel vision on the next decision. And that's really all you can see. So it's awesome that your leadership had your back and that they had such a long-term view for you to ensure that, you know, even though they knew you probably weren't thinking about those things that they would write, you know, kind of put them into the conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. I remember, I, I remember thinking the exact thing, but much later down the road, you know, um, I remember thinking, man, it, all I, all I could think of was, what's the next move? You know, do I have to go final out at the MPF? What do I have to sign at TMO? I was not thinking 10, 15 years down the road for my career. And uh, looking back, yeah, that was absolutely amazing that they took the time to think of that for me. 
Um, and uh, it was it, it start it started from the flight chief level. So at the time, Master Sergeant Rene Medina, my commander, Colonel Woodward. Um, yeah, everybody just kind of took the time to, to look out for me and my family in that time, um, thinking about everything that could affect us. And that was amazing. I kind of have a, a little bit of an off-topic question. Um, this sounds, you know, when you talk about adversity, this sounds like just the pure definition. Um, just the not knowing, the lack of control. So from a resiliency standpoint, you know, we talk about the four pillars and when we speak about Air Force resiliency, spiritual, social, mental, and physical, like for you personally, which one of those domains kind of took the hardest hit during this time? Personally, it was physical for sure. Um, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that. So religion wasn't a big, you know, big aspect in my life. It, it was an aspect, but not that big, more so for my wife. Um, social wasn't that big either. either. However, when this all came to happen, um, I actually felt huge support from my coworkers and, and my leadership, which kind of built into that social those social relationships that I was very kind of surprised with. I was always kind of to myself. And um, when this happened and there's outpouring support, I was kind of taken back a little bit. Um, but the physical, that's the one I, I struggled the most, to be honest, because, you know, I was at the hospital every day and in my mind, there was no time to go work out. There was no time to, to, to do anything other than go to the hospital and be there. And then over time, um, I was tired. It was not sustainable, you know, cause then you're in the hospital. So you just eat what they have there and you find yourself in a really negative pattern of just eating whatever you can find, which is usually snack food out of vending machines. And uh, after a while, yeah, that was a, a huge kind of hit in my in in my physical pillar because I just didn't I didn't have the the mental capacity to focus on all the things that I had to do. Um, my mind was just focused on being here, being supportive to my wife and to my daughter, and um, yeah, that was a I think that was the biggest hit for me. Thank you for that. Um, I want to take a second, and kind of get us back on track because I kind of went down the rabbit hole a little bit, which I tend to do. But um, you said your wife and daughter were airlifted to Washington, D.C. So that sounds like a EFMP or humanitarian PCS. So what was that transition like? You said that your leadership at in San Antonio was really good and the way that they kind of took a family approach to handling the situation. How did that transition go for you? Because we've all, you know, many of our listeners are military members in FPCS. I don't think many of us can say that we've PCS'd in the middle of a situation quite like this. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, to be honest, it was very confusing um, for me. There was all these forms that you had to fill out. You had to understand what the EFMP process was. Um, and then, of course, at the time, you're still trying to out-process, so you're trying to do your final outs and TMO to come pack your stuff. All this craziness, um, wife and daughter already left, um, so it was, a, it was very confusing, a lot of going on, 
lot of stuff going on. But um, what stood out to me was that when my wife and my daughter had already arrived in D.C., my new leadership was already on it. They were already talking to, to me, talking to her. You know, I remember my shirt. He, he came and picked her up and drove her around D.C., showed her around, um, took her to base if she needed any supplies because my wife was staying at the, um, at the Ronald McDonald house uh, in downtown D.C. at the time. And, um, you know, he took care of her in that aspect. Uh, my commander, Colonel Guadalupe, and my flight chief, Mr. Chalekis, um, they were just constantly sending me texts. Hey, are, do you need anything? Is there anything we can help you with? Um, is the process for you on your end going slowly? Um, or is it moving at a good pace? Do you need me to call anybody? Um, all these questions that, you know, sometimes I didn't even know what questions I needed to ask. I didn't know what questions I wanted to be asked, but they just asked them and it felt, I felt a lot of relief kind of thinking that I didn't have to think about anything else. They were almost taking care of us, um, you know, without us even having to ask for it, which is amazing. So looking back, one thing I've noticed and, and I noticed back then was that support never stopped. You know, our commander, Colonel Guadalupe, was constantly asking us how the baby was doing when we were hospitalized, him and his family would come and visit us and his wife and his daughters were just always supportive and awesome to my wife. Uh, he would come by with the chief, just make sure we were doing okay for Thanksgiving. He brought us some of the food that they cooked for airmen at the, at the defect on, on base. So moments like that, where you almost feel alone and like, there's no family there for you. And then they remind you, Hey, you know, we're here for you, you know? And, um, even my flight chief, Mr. Chalek, is constantly calling and texting, saying, hey, do you need anything? Do you need any food? Do you need us to take care of anything at home? Just tell us what you need, and uh, I'll take care of it. That, to me, goes just unspoken. It's an unbelievable effort on all parts, and that was amazing and a blessing, and we really appreciate them for that. So, you know, at this point, fast forward, today is April 9th of... 2020 and you know your daughter is two years old what how is she doing how what's her health like and how are you all coping with you know making sure that you are able to address her specific health needs great question so fast forward to today she's doing fantastic she's uh you know two and a half now going on three years old she has a really good um outlook on life and the doctors say she's going to do very well um her uh she's had multiple surgeries for her intestines and um you know and her arms as well and there her arms are at a point where they can somewhat function a little bit more normal um however she still has some limitations but you know just going from not being able to move your arms to being able to pick up a spoon to, to us was like you know a 360 degree turn um which is amazing and uh funny enough her arm uh doctor specialist is actually in delaware um at the uh a uh, i dupont hospital um and so we actually travel from here to delaware about every other month to get her her arms taken care of and uh again just one more thing that you know Tricare has no questions to ask about it. They just said, hey, 
if if this is a specialist, then I guess you got to go. And um, to us, it was like another, yet again, another blessing to to have a specialist in her condition be able to treat her. And so, you know, she has home nursing. She has 16 hours a day, uh, which just looking at, you know, all the expenses and stuff, if we were in the civilian sector, honestly, I don't know how we would be able to afford all her medical needs. So just another, just one more thing to add on to the list of things that TRICARE has done so well for us, you know. And so in reality, the struggle, what I've noticed is it never really stops. It just kind of changes forms. And by that, I mean that, you know, my struggle with PT never really changed because I was, I felt like I never recovered. But what I did notice was that there was amazing airmen always willing to help out. We have an airman Brown and airman Johnson at our squadron. And, um, they were, you know, when I asked for help in terms of my run and working on it and improving it, they were no questions asked. Hey, what time do you want to meet? Let's get at it. You know, and we're talking at, five o'clock in the morning meeting at the gym. And that to me was pretty much an indescribable feeling of pride in the Air Force family. And uh, it never stopped. It wasn't like we got in and PCS in and, you know, they helped us then and, and we're good to go. Even our current commander, Colonel Hernandez, you know, when, for example, when she mentioned a couple months ago that, I was tasked to deploy uh, my flight chief, my senior, uh, senior master reporter, and my commander were like, hey, before we talk about that, just how's your family doing, you know? And it was almost like, yeah, we want you to deploy, but we need you to be ready to deploy. So let's take care of your family first. And that to me was just an amazing feeling. So you kind of hit on something there, um, talking about balance. And... Man, between being a spouse, a father, a professional, and then like also trying to carve out time to like take care of yourself, balance is hard. And I, I heard a chief say once that, you know, balance is a myth. Like it doesn't exist. No one is balancing everything. What they're doing is they're addressing things that need to be addressed. And there's a great, um, there's this great speech by Matthew McConaughey that uh, it's something it's on YouTube. It's titled like something like the 13 life lessons or something along those lines. And he basically says that like every day he evaluates like the score that he achieved today in all of those different areas. And sometimes, you know, if your marriage is suffering, then you have to kind of pull back from some of those other areas and you have to ramp up and, with your spouse so that you can take care of that relationship. Or if, you know, your, your work life is suffering, then you kind of have to pull back from some of those other areas and put more focus and attention into work. Uh, did you find yourself kind of taking those evaluations at the end of the day or the week and saying to yourself, like, I'm doing all the things I need to do here, but I need to attack this thing that's outside of, Th those realms that I'm doing well in. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. Um, great insight, by the way. So when we talk about balance, it's funny, you know, I think of balance as two things that are equal. 
And uh, a lot of the times, I think we kind of put it in the wrong context. You know, a lot of the people that are in the military that are that are married with with kids and have a family, they would not put the Air Force on the equal playing field as their family. You know, I think no questions asked. They'd probably be like, yeah, I'll take care of my family first. But we want to be these airmen that that shoot for excellence in all we do and give the Air Force everything we have. And then it's in that kind of internal battle that we eventually end up doing more for one and less for the other. And we then have to come to terms to find this mythical balance. Um, what I realized was that I was excelling at my job because it was this place where I felt productive. I felt distracted from my reality at home. And I felt like I was, you know, being the best I could be. Um, but I was neglecting so much at home. Um, I wasn't talking to my wife as much. I wasn't listening to her talk as much. Um, and so that created a lot of issues. And so what I had to do was kind of essentially delineate, you know, hey, if I'm at work from 6 to 3 or 7.30 to 4.30, whatever my 8 eight to 9 hours are, I'm going to be at work. I'm going to be extremely focused on that. Um, but when I'm not there and I'm with my family, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be with my family. And um, I tried very hard to disconnect from work and like kind of let go. Um, and it was extremely difficult. I wanted to keep talking about it. I wanted to, you know, keep doing the stuff that, that I wanted to do because I was passionate about it. But yeah, it, it, it took a really long time for me to understand that and to implement mechanisms that I could then, you know, that would help me carry out my vision of what balance looked like. This really sounds like a situation where everything kind of did what it was supposed to do. You guys, every leadership chain that you were involved with, your doctors, literally your entire care team. And when I say that, I mean, your previous squadron leadership, your current squadron leadership, your medical team or whatnot, they were all kind of firing on all cylinders. How do you think that contributed to like ensuring that you and your wife got through this and were able to kind of, while it may not have seemed like it at the time, we're kind of able to thrive and get to where you are today? Oh man. So it was, it was a huge contributor. So, you know, kind of what we mentioned earlier, they were thinking of things that had never even crossed um, my wife's and I um, mind at the time, you know, and just like you said, we were just thinking what's going to happen tomorrow, what decision do we need to make, you know, in an hour from, uh, from now, um, very kind of short sighted dealing with the situations that we were. But having a, a network, a family that considered all the ramifications, both personal and professional, um, I felt like just lifted this huge weight off my shoulders. And it was almost like they were saying, you don't have to do this by yourself. You know, y'all are not alone. Um, you might not have your family here to support you, your blood family here to support you. You know, it might not be a perfect scenario, given that your daughter's in the hospital a lot. But while you're going through this, we're here for you. And we'll go with uh, through this with you. And um, yeah, there's just nothing that 
you know, that I could ever compare to that feeling of being in a family. And uh, that's that's what it felt like. And I not once did I feel like I couldn't count on anybody to help me in any other way, shape, or form that I needed. Um, and uh, it was to the extent that, you know, my my chief in my squadron was like, hey, you know, if you're here for a longer period, maybe we move you to a different section. Maybe we, you know, is there another base around here that we can move you to so that you get that professional growth? Again, it's all these things that I had not considered, not once. I was just thinking, how do we take care of our daughter? And uh, looking back, I, I, you know, I wouldn't be where I am today, a technical sergeant, you know, without the support of my squadron and my leadership and my coworkers and essentially the air force family. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad you kind of hit on, you know, what you've been able to achieve because you promoted in the middle of this. I did. Isn't that right? <laughs> I did. So uh, what was, I mean, what was that like? So it was funny. Uh, it was 2018 and my, I was in the office. I had tested out of cycle and, um, I don't think I was, uh, it was, and my daughter was in the hospital at the time. And, um, so I was not really thinking about anything else other than getting off of work at four 30 and then heading to the hospital that day. And at around four o'clock, my commander comes in, um, just to talk and, uh, which was normal of, of him to do. And, uh, you know, so I get up and he's, and he's talking, but all of a sudden I look over the corner and there's like everybody in there and he's only talking to me. And I was like, Oh, I think I know where this is going. <laughs> but in my head, I was, you know, until the moment that he said it, I was still like, is this good or bad? I'm not sure what's happening right now. And then these, and then they surprised me with a promotion and he's, he, it was, yeah, it was like actually three thirty. So, and he gave it to me and my boss was like, just, just go celebrate it. Go, go enjoy this with your wife because y'all need this. And, um, and I just went straight to the hospital and, you know, and, uh, showed a little wine bottle to my wife with my name on it. And man, she just started crying. She was just so elated because we hadn't even thought about it. I went and tested, but nothing on my mind was saying I want to promote. I think at the time I was just like, we just need to figure this out and we just need to be the best parents we could be for our daughter. But again, it's this, these little moments of joy that come around and, and you just, rejoice in them and, and, you know, enjoy them with the ones around you. So. Wow. Well, Hey, Jules, I want to thank you for, again, for being the first. Um, I think just, uh, your story is moving. I think it's, um, I think it's inspirational for one, the way that your leadership rallied around you and the way that you and your wife were able to make it through and still provide the care that your daughter needed. And so just, again, thank you so much for being the first. I, I really appreciate you giving me your time. And I just hope that, you know, maybe your story will maybe be what someone needs for what they're going through today or in the future. Absolutely. Thank you for, uh, for having me on your podcast, for being the first. And, um, you know, I really do appreciate the opportunity to share my experience and, and really, if there's anybody out there that hears this, that has questions, that just needs to vent, uh, needs help in any way, shape, or form, please do not hesitate to to find me on the global. Jules Ponton, I'm, I think I'm the only tech sergeant out there. Um, and uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm here for you, I'm just like, you know, just like family, because that's what we are. 
All right, Jules. Well, hey, thank you very much. You have a great day. Thank you, Austin. You too. Thank you for joining us. I hope Technical Sergeant Ponton's story and experience has been able to reach you in some way. Whether as someone going through adversity, if so, reach out. There is strength in numbers. Never suffer in silence. Or if you're a supervisor with a subordinate that is struggling, your words and actions have an impact and create a story that your airmen will tell for years to come. If you would like to be a guest on Resilient AF, please email your story to resilientaf.mail at gmail.com. Thank you and have a blessed day.